Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Forest Dark, the latest from acclaimed American novelist Nicole Krauss, and then Camilla Shamsi's Man Booker Long listed novel, Home Fire. Nicole Krauss has been hailed by the New York Times as one of America's most important novelists. She is the author of the international bestsellers Great House, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and the Orange Prize and The History of Love, which won the Sarian Prize for International Literature, and France's Prix de Milieu Livre Etranger, and was shortlisted for the Orange, Medicis and Femina Prizes. Her first novel, Man Walks Into a Room, was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book of the Year. In 2007, she was selected as one of Granter's best young American novelists, and in 2010, she was chosen by The New Yorker for their 20 Under 40 list. Her fiction has been published in The New Yorker, Harper's, Esquire and Best American Short Stories and her books have been translated into more than 35 languages. And Nicole's latest novel, which we're going to talk about today, is Forest Dark. Nicole, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. How would you describe Forest Dark? Well, it depends whether you want me to describe the narrative or whether you want me to describe the beginning, how it came to me, or what I think it's about. <laughs> Any of those Any things. Of how those would you things. describe? Well, it's a book that has... Um, a parallel structure, so two narratives, two characters whose lives are following a kind of search, and that search traces the same physical ground. It goes over the same geography from New York to the Tel Aviv Hilton Hotel and finally out to the desert in Israel. And at the same time, those stories are really crossing and recrossing similar metaphysical ground. It's really quite an existential search that they're on. And yet the stories barely physically touch. And yet as we follow them, one being Jules Epstein, who is a 68-year-old lawyer um, who, in the wake of his parents' death and his very late divorce um, after more than 30 years of marriage, decides that he perhaps has neglected some aspect of his being. He's a man of absolute materialities and authority and certainty. Um, And he thinks, what if I was wrong in a sense? And what if I perhaps neglected this other realm that maybe we could call the spiritual realm, the realm of uncertainty? Mm -hmm. So his story, and then the story of another character who also has the name Nicole, and who, like me, is a writer, and who has found herself in a moment in her life at the age of about 39, having chosen forms for herself, um, whether that be the form of wife or mother or writer, that in the end or in that moment she finds confining. They are no longer forms that give her enough freedom to live as perhaps largely or openly or as experimentally as she might want to. And so they, they both find themselves in these moments of needing to kind of escape through a crack in the door closing. So you mentioned Julius Epstein, who's absolutely definitely a fictional character. You've mentioned the second character, Nicole, who is an author, lives in Brooklyn, has got very similar, some similar personal circumstances to yourself as well. And so we'll talk about Nicole and why a little bit 
a little bit later on. I want to talk about Julius first. But first of all, where does this idea come from of doing the two parallel narratives? Well, this is my fourth novel, and since the first novel, I've always been interested in what happens when you take various threads, narrative threads, or voices, or circumstances, and begin to juxtapose them, so to place them in concert together. My second novel, History of Love, was sort of followed three interweaving storylines, Great House. The last book was actually four um, voices and separate characters. And what I, what I found is that in doing that, rather than choosing a kind of linear, progressive narrative that traditionally goes from you know difficulty to climax to resolution, and we follow the character from A to B and all the way through to Z, in that kind of linear narrative the reader's led along on a kind of leash. And in a sense, you can't help predict the steps you're going in, both as the writer and as the reader. What happens in a polyphonic structure is all kinds of echoes and subterranean connections that the writer is aware of, but also the reader has room to feel or notice for himself or herself. And that creates a much, I find, a much more subtle, sophisticated sense of meaning an idea you can get at concepts in a much richer way and I think a more moving way because the reader is quite invested in that Mm -hmm. it's it's a less passive experience and I think finally it gets at things in a more authentic way but also you could take that further because as I said Nicole is and we could talk to the extent of how much she is clearly based on yourself and so having that device in the book as well is you know you're commenting on the nature of literature and things as well all the way through the book as well as it just being a narrative story well in a sense it's provoking questions about how we value and perceive value in reality Mm -hmm. and why it is that we so highly prioritize what we think of as the real or the authentic or, in the case of literature, the autobiographical. Like, Mm. did that really happen to you? Is that really you? Is that based, in fact, over something that is imaginary or invented? When we know two things, one is that reality, as we perceive it, is not objective. And we know that in many realms. Um, We know that, you know, this room where you and I are sitting and talking is not, in fact, made of solid things. The chair we're sitting on is not solid. It is, you know, atoms in motion and a lot of empty space, but we perceive the solidity of the world because we need to in order to survive. It, it benefits our survival as a species to think, well, a stone is a thing we can pick up and throw. And then if you think of that, you know, we all, so we all know that even though we learn that in physics class at some point or other, we still see the world as solid. Or if you look at another level, for example, we all have agreed collectively to believe in the fiction that the paper in our wallets is worth something. Mm-hmm. And so reality, as we think of it, is actually made up of many fictions, many collectively held fictional beliefs. And once we think of, about that, we start to also think about the narrative, which is a, a kind of construct of the self, for example, how we sort of form the story of who we are, which begins when we're quite young, like you are like this, and your brother is like that. Mm-hmm. You know, your parents tell you, and then you begin to continue that story, you respond to it. But all along the way, you are constructing a sense and a, a, a sense of coherence about who you are. And the human brain absolutely needs that. It demands that order above all else. And yet again, we can reflect on it and say, actually, that is an act of imagination on some level, and an act of squeezing the chaos of existence into a finer line of of order, really. Um, So the book says, if that is all the case, if we know that reality and narrative are um, constructs, why do we live by them as if they are laws that dictate who we are and how we can live in this world? Of course, some laws we don't have a choice over, gravity, et cetera, et cetera, many, many. But there are some that I think we, we tend to believe as laws. We are who we are. We are fixed in this life, and we, are, you know, now that we've made this decision, the consequences will just play themselves out, and we have no active role in that anymore, etc. So we, we continue to believe in those realities and errors, even when they no longer fit us, and they begin to sometimes even make us ill. And so this is a book about the possibility of breaking them, of leaving those familiar forms behind and being formless for a moment before a new form is found, and also amplifying or expanding our sense 
of what's possible in the real. And if life itself is possibly a construct in that sort of way, obviously a novel very much is. A novel is a completely constructed thing written by an author. Putting an author into it again, regardless of whether or not, okay, we'll get to that in a bit, but whether or not that's yourself or just a character that happens to be an author is also very much highlighting that idea, isn't it? It is, and it, honestly, it's an experience that I have had from the beginning. Anyone who tries to write a story and create a character will find that in the act of that creation, it is partially a pouring of your own personal self into the character. So that character might be, in my case, an old man who survived the Holocaust or an Israeli father addressing his estranged son So obviously, physically, geographically, culturally, not me, and yet feels deeply personal to me because I'm putting much of what I've experienced and know or have observed into him. And also, he is equally an act of invention. I am imagining through the act of empathy and whatever experience and observation I've gathered up through my life of watching such people. I am pouring that invention into him and he becomes real in a fictional space in a way that he could never be real in the world, right? Very often, this is, I think, an interesting thing, very often those characters that seem most live and real and convincing to us on the page could not possibly Mm -hmm. exist or stand up in the world, you know? And I think that once you have that experience as a writer, you have the experience again, of practicing that expansion of self. So you stop thinking of writing as the thing that they told you it was in school, which is an act of self-expression. Here I am expressing my feelings. <laughs> I'm six years old in kindergarten or first grade expressing them to this larger idea, which is no, actually in the act of writing, I am creating, enlarging my sense of self, adding to it and giving voice to the feeling that one life one perspective, one narrative is not enough for me, not enough for any of us. We want to see things in a more multidimensional way. And so in writing a character that's called Nicole, it wasn't so very different from doing that other thing that I'm describing, mm-hmm. which is writing an old man. The difference here is that I knew that the reader would then be provoked to have some of those questions. And the hope is that in the process of following this story through this Nicole to whom quite extraordinary things happen, some of them quite surreal, many of which, frankly, did happen to me, mm-hmm. are taken from my own experience. And you might not know which, because often it's the most fantastical ones which really did happen to me, maybe the pedestrian details less so, mm-hmm. but also sometimes vice versa, that, that it challenges your idea or your presumption about what is real and what it takes to create fiction. And I guess the last thing I would say to that is that we know, those of us who read and love to read, we do know that literature sends back to us reflections of our world and who we are that are often more true than what we can gather here when we're doing the shopping or driving our kids to school or, you know, even walking in the park, that it sends back to us very true and real and profound news of ourselves Um, and in that sense is equally if not more real than daily quotidian life. How do you feel about then you know doing that putting part of yourself into the character but also fictionalizing parts as well and then you know having that go out into the world and be read by people I guess it's obviously for any novel that you write there's going to be part of you in it that are characters that are made up and Perhaps people that know you might recognise incidents that really happened in your life that the you know the, the general readers wouldn't wouldn't notice. But you're explicitly putting out a character here that is in large parts based on yourself. But as you've just said, there's other parts that isn't. Yes. Well, I, I think for me, I've had public life for quite some time now, and I've had the experience maybe on a in a kind of louder way than most people have the experience, although we all have it of knowing that the public aspects of oneself are very far removed from one's own experience of life. And often the public narrative, whether it's the one that's in the newspaper, if you're a public figure, a writer, or whether it's the one, the aspect of yourself that's known, I don't know, when you drop off your kids to school to that community versus the one that's known in your local neighborhood or to your parents or whatever, that oftentimes there's a projection of yourself that is not accurate, not accurate to your sense of your reality. And I think that the distortions of that can get quite extreme when your life is as public as as I think mine has sometimes felt to me. And so with that knowledge and that experience, 
it's not like I'm saying, oh, look at me, like here, <laughs> come think something personal about my life. It's almost, I suppose, in some ways a response to having had that experience and mm. saying, actually, this is this sense in all of our lives, a sense of self which gets projected and which we take quite seriously is actually much more complex than we often give it credit, you know, for being. So yes, I think it was definitely conscious, but in some sense you also have to remember that writing a novel, at least as I know it, is an improvisatory, intuitive process. It is not something that you think out in advance and think, ah, what will be the consequences of calling this character Nicole or taking more liberally from my own life as in a way that might be recognized by the reader. Something else is happening to you, to me, when I'm working, which is, in this case, it was chronicling, because I was almost stuck, as, as Nicole in the book is stuck, with this obsession of somehow writing a novel based on the Tel Aviv Hilton structurally or set there, or somehow that building seemed to suggest itself as a guide to how to write a new novel, and then I got stuck in that. I began to sort of chronicle the obsession, and in doing that, I began to tell some stories of some quite remarkable things that happened to me in that hotel, despite how real and imposing um, and authoritative a reality it is. The things that happened to me there, I've been going there since I was a child, often seem quite magical and, and nearly mystical, actually. And so in describing one of those experiences, which involved being a child with my brother and going, find, discovering that the pool and the hotel seemed to be filled with coins at the bottom and we were diving for them. And at one point, wanting to please my brother, we hadn't found any for a while, I sort of pointed, screamed out, there's something down there. He was a diver and I was a spotter. He was a bit older. And, and as he went down, I just had this you know dark guilt of knowing there was absolutely nothing down there. And then he came up and what happened next is still to, to this day to me inexplicable unless we think about the fact that the laws we believe govern reality are actually too confined, that we have those laws because they fit our sense of, of um, how things should be rather than, you know. So he opened his hand and he had in his palm an earring and it had this tiny three little diamonds and this ruby heart at the bottom. And of course my mother, you know, marched us through the frigid lobby and gave it to a jeweler and who pronounced it real. Um, and I think at the time, it was so striking to me, not because it was real, because, of course, only I knew just how unreal it was. I didn't care how real it was in the in the sense of, of being a piece of jewelry. Only I knew just how unreal it was, and I had somehow willed this thing into existence. And and it was a moment in my life, seven years old, where, you know, the the world still feels flexible to your special pleading, right? And, and at some point, at seven, eight, or nine, that door seems to shut, and we then agree to go along with a more conservative approach to what's possible in the world and and that the world is is not open to our to those sorts of hopes or pleas um, so was, I described it as sort of a foot in the way of a door closing, and then I went on to just say that I'd lost this my mother made it to a necklace and that I wore it for a long time and I went on to say that it was lost for a while until it was found again in a safe deposit box where my parents had put it with one of my father's ubiquitous labels, you know, he labels everything, and it was this label that said, Nicole's necklace found in Tel Aviv Hilton pool. And so I put that in because that bit, as I said, fantastical as it is, did happen to me. And the moment I put it there, totally instinctively, without having deliberated on this whole conversation that we're having now, it made a kind of sense to me because it opened up for me an enormous freedom, and that freedom was not to just put myself down the page or be personal or, or, or confessional. On the contrary, it gave me this freedom to take myself in a quite literal way and begin to imagine and invent and expand and ask these sort of questions we've been talking about today. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Nicole Krauss. We're talking about her latest novel, Forest Dark. 
And Nicole, you've just gave part of an explanation for why the novel is set largely in Tel Aviv, and particularly in the Tel Aviv Hilton, place that you used to visit yourself, and you got this idea that you wanted to, to set something there. But also there's other reasons for Tel Aviv being a perfect city for some of the themes of this novel, aren't there? Yes, um, I would just add that although the characters go to the Tel Aviv Hilton they are quickly um, sort of exploded out of it, out into the, the landscape of Israel and specifically to the desert. So I don't think I could have kept them confined in that hotel. That would have been too claustrophobic for me to set a whole novel there. And that desert um, and the sea and ultimately forest became deeply important landscapes to me in thinking about this book and, and sending my characters um, into them. But Tel Aviv you're absolutely right to say it couldn't have been any city that I sent them to. In a sense, it had to be Tel Aviv, not just because it is a city native to me, and I've been going there since I was a child and still go there many times a year, but because Tel Aviv is a place that is deeply engaged in the process of self-invention. I mean, Israel as a society is not yet even 70 years old and, and of course, has been engaged with that act of invention. You know, it's a place, in a sense, without cultural precedent. So you have all of these, you know, the diaspora, European post-Holocaust Jews or those that came just before moving there with a kind of European sensibility and finding them in finding themselves in the context of the Middle East, you know, an Arabic context rather than than European. And, you know, and then everything that happened since, in a sense, has sped up recently because Tel Aviv became a kind of center of counterculture and a place where all of the artists in the last 10, 15 years have gravitated to. So it's a city where you have all of these creative people engaged in the act of inventing themselves in contrast to the mainstream, but also just in the full blossom of their creativity. And that means inventing new art and humor and food that reflects that Middle Eastern Arabic context. And so you feel that energy in the street. You feel that this is a place. You step out the door and immediately you are subsumed in this urgent activity of being and this sort of deep sense of sort of existential um, questioning, but also a sense of urgency that's absolutely alive, alive in a place that in a way that other places like London or New York don't feel, because in a sense, so much has already been decided here. You're a Jewish American writer, acclaimed, as I mentioned in the introduction, as one of America's most important novelists, no less. And obviously, you have this connection back to Tel Aviv and Israel, much smaller place. You know, Israel's about the size of, I don't know, Connecticut or something. A postage stamp. Yeah. Um, what's the reception to your work like in Israel as compared to America is what I wanted to get to. Well, it is different. America is an absolutely enormous place and it's a place so large with so many concerns and so many various and conflicting concerns that it often doesn't have time to pay attention to a lot of... <laughs> you know it's the what you know it's individual activity within and so i think in a sense america is less aware of what its writers are doing than a place like israel israel being smaller being um more actively engaged in sort of quite deep existential questions as i said cares in a sense more about reflections of themselves as seen through their own writers, as seen through, you know, foreign writers or Jewish American writers. And as in any minority in the world, and a minority that feels threatened in some way, there's a kind of deep sensitivity about their portrayal. And so, yes, I mean, I have felt both, you know, both the good and the bad of that. The good is how wonderful it is to have a dedicated audience there, and also, frankly, to have such rich material as my own. I'm talking about, you know, thousands of years of history and some of the most radical and bewildering and moving texts ever written, philosophical, narrative, intellectual, mystical, and all of the culture and comedy and intensity um, and psychology and all of all that's wonderful material to have as a writer to call your own. But then, of course, there's the, the other side of that, which is then expectation, the expectation that comes along with that. And that expectation, in some sense, though it may not be voiced 
exactly like this, but it's about representation. Okay, you if you are a writer writing about Jewish life and, and Jewish people, you are representing us in some way. And so we have a claim on you and we have an investment in that representation that we wouldn't otherwise have. I'm glad you brought that up because I want to get onto the claim to writers as we're going to the last part of the show. One of the um, one of the writers that's, I mean, influenced you throughout your career, but explicitly in this book is Kafka. Tell us why. Well, even before I ever read Kafka, he was like this known familial figure to me. I knew his name the way, you know, you know, some great uncle's name. And once I did read him and imme- just immediately taken by his work and the sensibility I found there, I think I really start did start to feel that he was like this kind of great uncle who, you know, this sort of eccentric in the family who opened up a path for being that otherwise wouldn't have been available to me. And I just felt deeply grateful for that. And so he's, there's this closeness in a way that I, I can't say that I necessarily feel with other writers, Jewish or not, this deep, you know, intimate sense in which he, he felt like my writer, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there are, there are thousands, if not millions, who must feel the same way. And so he was always there and, he, you know, I would somehow find some way to reflect on him in my work. There's an obituary to Kafka in The History of Love, for example, and it was sort of, it wasn't really a deliberate choice again to make so much of this book turn around the character of Kafka or the Kafka's work. But what happened was I, I became quite interested in this court case that had been going on. It was still going on while I was writing the book. It now has finally been decided. But it was an eight-year-long court case in Israel between the National Library of Israel and a woman who had um, inherited the remaining papers of Kafka that Max Brod had smuggled out of Prague in 1939 on the last train as the Nazis were entering the city. And, of course, Max Brod brought them to Palestine from where he began to publish all of Kafka's work. What was left when he died went to his secretary and then to her children. And so all of the remaining papers that have not been published or sold to libraries, you know, those pages in Kafka's hand, were in this apartment on Spinoza Street in Tel Aviv. And I used to pass it all the time while this court case was going on. And it's quite striking because it's a ground floor apartment, so there are bars on it. And behind those bars is this mesh cage. And there are 30 or 40 cats milling about. And you smell, you know, this sort of stench of cat pee. And you just, of course, then your mind leaps to imagining what's happening to those papers within. Papers which seem, I guess, on some level to be like some extension, right? The only the only physical extension we have left of Kafka himself. And I just found myself thinking about that, like, is it Kafka who's, in, you know, jailed within? Or is it us on the outside who's some kept from touching or accessing something we so desperately want or the National Library so desperately wanted in this case? And naturally, when you start to think of imprisonment, you also start to think about escape. <laughs> and I just found myself thinking about how Kafka, the story that Max Broad gives us of Kafka, which is really the canonical story, because Max Broad controlled not just the publication of his work, but our image of him. He wrote the biography of Kafka. So for a very long time, our sense of who Kafka was came through the lens of Broad. And that story really is a, about a martyr, in a sense, who who died having not escaped, didn't escape his overbearing father, didn't escape having to work in an insurance agency instead of writing, and didn't escape the tuberculosis that finally killed him, and just a sort of suffering saint. And yet, when you read Kafka... I feel, at least, that you, you can't help but feel that this is someone who did escape, if, if only because we keep reading him mm-hmm. after all these years. So his father, we don't know what his father thought or even what he was like. We only know his father through the lens of Kafka, and, and we go on reading Kafka because he eludes us, in a sense. So we keep returning to him in order to understand. And the more I thought about that, about the possibility for escape, which I was really thinking about for Epstein and Nicole as well, the more I started to think, well, what if Kafka hadn't died? 1924. And what if, in fact, he had been secreted to Palestine? He he was very interested in imagining a life there. He learned Hebrew for 10 years. There's all kinds of facts, real quote-unquote facts, um, that suggest this alternate universe in which Kafka could have been secreted out of Prague and lived out the rest of his life in um, unknown in Palestine, writing in Hebrew, but largely just being a gardener. That's the story that I ended up writing, and it, did, and it echoed to me very deeply with 
some of these ideas we've talking about, not just about escape, but about how in the fictional realm and the invented realm, we can often find some truth about Kafka and that story gets reflected back to us, um, that it is as valid as the story that Max Brod told us about his life and who he was. That's it for me, but can I get you to read us a little bit of Forest Dark before we finish? Yes. Okay, I'm going to read a part from Nicole's first chapter. Why had he really come to Tel Aviv? In a story, a person always needs a reason for the things she does. Even where there appears to be no motivation, later on it is always revealed by the subtle architecture of plot and resonance that there was one. Narrative cannot sustain formlessness any more than light can sustain darkness. It is the antithesis of formlessness, and so it can never truly communicate it. Chaos is the one truth that narrative must always betray, for in the creation of its delicate structures that reveal many truths about life, the portion of truth that has to do with incoherence and disorder must be obscured. More and more, it had felt to me that in the things I wrote, the degree of artifice was greater than the degree of truth, that the cost of administering a form to what was essentially formless was akin to the cost of breaking the spirit of an animal that is too dangerous to otherwise live with. One could observe the truth of the animal at closer range without the risk of violence, but it was a truth whose spirit had been altered. The more I wrote, the more suspect the good sense and studied beauty achieved by the mechanisms of narrative seemed to me. I didn't want to give them up, didn't want to live without their consolation. I wanted to employ them in a form that could contain the formless so that it might be held close, as meaning is held close, and grappled with. It should have felt impossible, but instead it felt merely elusive, so I couldn't give up the aspiration. The Hilton had seemed to promise itself with such a form, the house of the mind that conjures the world, but in the end I failed to fill it with any meaning. I've been talking to Nicole Krauss, who have been talking about her latest novel, Forest Dark, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury Books. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing it with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
I'm Emma Jane Unsworth. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Camilla Shamsi is the author of six previous novels, In the City by the Sea and Cartography, both of which were shortlisted for the John Llewellyn Rees Prize, Sultan Saffron, Broken Verses, Burnt Shadows, which was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction, and A God in Every Stone, which was shortlisted for the Bailey's Prize, the Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction, and the DSC Prize for South Asian Literature. Three of her novels have received awards from Pakistan's Academy of Letters, and Camilla is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and in 2013 was named the Granter Best of Young British Novelist. Her latest novel, which we're going to talk about today, Home Fire, has been long-listed for the 2017 Man Booker Prize. Camilla, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. So what's the idea behind Home Fire? So it's taking the Sophocles version of the Antigone story, although... You know, I quickly like to say you don't need to know Antigone, you don't need to go out and read Antigone. Uh, But at the heart of that play is the idea of an individual taking on the laws of a state around the issue of someone she loves but who has been a traitor to the state. And I've sort of updated that for 21st century Britain, actually. It's set in 2015, so it's it's pretty contemporary. And there are two families, the three Pasha siblings and then the lone father and son. They're all British Muslim, but in very different ways. Um, so one family has their three siblings whose father was a jihadi who dies on his way to Guantanamo. And on the other side of the tracks, you have the home secretary and his son. Why 2015? I mean, I guess obviously when it was written and books obviously take a, take a bit of a time to come to press, but is there any particular reason for that year other than that? Well, part of, of the story, and we don't want to give away too much of it, but, but part of it has to do with a young man who um, gets targeted by a recruiter from Islamic State. And of course 2015 was when all of that was starting up and you were beginning to hear the stories of, of young British men going off to Syria to fight. And so I, because I wanted that, and I wanted it to be early enough that it was still possible really to not know that much about what this newly formed Islamic State was all about. So I wanted it to be in those early days. And the book is told from the perspective of a number of the characters. Um, so I think what we'll do is we'll go through each of those and we'll talk about each character in turn and, and talk about issues around those characters as we go along. So Isma, first of all, mm-hmm. is the older sister who's basically raised her twin siblings after they've been orphaned. Tell us something more about her. So Isma's the first character you encounter in the novel. Um, she's still quite young in the novel. She's in her late 20s, but she has the air of someone much older, possibly, because you know from the time she's 21, she's been looking after these twin siblings. And she learned very early on in life what it is to be let down by someone because her father who was absent from her life, suddenly reappears. She completely falls in love with him. um, And then very quickly, he abandons the family again. So she's very guarded as a result. But the great love of her life really is is her younger sister. I mean, she loves her younger brother as well, but her sister is central. But just before the novel opens, there's been a traumatic event within the family. And it happened just after Ismail was accepted at a PhD programme in America, And really, academics is what she wants for her life. It's what she had to stop doing in order to look after her her younger twins. And so in the beginning, she has gone to America, but there's half of her which thinks maybe she should have stayed in London Mm -hmm. with her sister. And certainly the siblings have conflicting thoughts about that as well, don't they? They do have conflicting thoughts about that. And and much of it is sort of, you know, what you owe to the people you, you leave behind and what you owe to yourself, really, at a certain point. But she very quickly... Well, not very quickly, but very quickly in the novel. Um, She's quite an isolated, solitary figure, although quite happy in many ways in her solitude. Um, But she runs into a fellow Londoner in a coffee shop. And they're the kind of Londoners who, if they'd met in London, would probably just walk straight past each other. But because they're the two foreigners in this small Massachusetts Mm -hmm. town, and because she recognises him as the son of a political figure, they, they start talking, and really that's where the novel begins. Right at the beginning of the novel, Isma's basically waylaid by security at the mm. airport to the extent that she, she misses her flight. And I was reading that section, and you know, part of my mind was thinking, oh, this is exaggerated for comic effect, but mm-hmm. obviously it isn't, is it? Tell me about that sort of thing. Is that something you've experienced? 
It's not something, I haven't experienced anything quite like ISMAs. What I do know is that there were a number of years post 9-11, and it still goes on, but mm-hmm. it was particularly strong post 9-11, where if you had a group of Pakistanis, in my case, so I expect it's probably true of Muslims of all kinds, mm-hmm. in a room together, soon the conversation would turn to airport stories, uh, because everyone... I knew had pretty much been pulled into an interrogation room at some point. For me, it used to happen every time I went to America, I'd get pulled into the secondary examination room. And nothing unpleasant ever happened. I never had the kind of interrogation Isma did, although I know friends of mine who have had really bizarre interrogations. But what happens is you find yourself sitting in that room waiting to be called up and you're looking around at everyone else in the room and almost no one is white. And you find yourself thinking about the kinds of questions you might be asked and what you might say in response. And, you know, the bit in there that most people are talking about when they talk about being sort of humorous and exaggerated is there's one point when she's sort of been questioned about her Britishness and how British she is. And, and she's asked a question about the great British bake-off. And actually that idea came because I was, in some of my reading around these kind of interrogations that happened, there was a British Muslim man had never committed a crime, but is pulled. He, I mean, this really happened. He was pulled aside um, and asked about his Britishness and was asked if he watched Dad's Army. And when he said no, this was clearly the wrong answer. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to, you know, in 2015, not Dad's Army. What am I going to use? Oh, the Great British Bake Off. Well, I was also yeah. reminded of the fuss yeah. that happened when a British Muslim won the Great British Bake Off as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a whole other thing, wasn't it? <laughs> so um, you've already mentioned Eamon, who's the, the young man that, that Isma bumps into in a, in a coffee shop in Massachusetts. And Eamon, that's the anglicised version of that name, you know, the, the Westernised Irish, I guess, version of that name, because he's a son who is basically, he spends the book looking for an identity and torn between two identities, doesn't he? Well, you know, Eamon's a name is an interesting one because the, it's pronounced Eamon. And depending on the spelling of it, it can either be recognised as an Irish name and his goes with that spelling, spelled yeah. with an E, or it can be a recognisably Muslim name, A-Y-M-A-N-N. And, Isma, and of course, Crayon's son yeah, is and, Eamon as and, well. And Crayon's son in the original <laughs> it is Eamon. Um, and Isma's response to the name is that, oh, you know, his father who's you know trying to be whiter than white, is sort of named his son with this non-Muslim spelling to try and obscure his Muslimness. But the other part of it is actually Eamon's mother is Irish. There's mm-hmm. a perfectly good, valid, you know, feminist reason. You know, he's got his father's last name. Of course, he should have the spelling um, that goes back to his mother's heritage. But it's it's in him that there are these two sides. And some people will think of him as, as being this son of an Irish-American and this posh public school boy. And there's another bit of him that is the son of a man who, you know, grew up working class Muslim in the north of England. Parve, which is, who is the um, one of the twins, Polynesis, I guess, would be the uh, mm. the analog in the in the Sophocles. Let's talk about. You've already sort of hinted at this, mm. but what does he do? So Parve's grows up very close to his twin sister Anika. They le- lead very similar lives, and then. When they hit 18, their lives really diverge. She gets a scholarship and goes to university and she's going to study law and he doesn't. And, you know, it's he's now in a world of student fees and he doesn't want to take on the cost of it. So he's a little bit adrift. He's also a little bit resentful that his sister's gone off and is leading this exciting new life at uni and he's been uh, left behind in, in Preston Road in Wembley uh, with all his friends now off somewhere else. So he's quite disaffected in many ways. He's also always been, you know, his sister's been his protector. She's always sort of been the much tougher one. And he's really sort of out alone in the world a little bit. And the story of his life that's always been the backdrop of his life is is this father who he never knew, um, this father who was a jihadi. And in the family, they never speak about him. And he never really hears the stories about him because it's a great source of shame. And his sister's able to live quite comfortably saying, you know, that man had nothing to do with us. But he's always missed a father figure. He's always yearned for a father figure. And there's one day when this older man who's sort of very sort of charismatic turns up and says, I know who your father was and he Mm -hmm. was a great hero. And Pervez wants those stories of his father. He wants to be able to think of his father as a hero. And he also wants to know how to be a man in the world when he's been raised in a house of women gets himself quite 
drawn to this this older man. Yeah. So this is Farouk, who mm. I mean, it, I mean, he, he's quite blatantly a, a, a recruiter for mm-hmm. ISIS. Although Pavez, when he first meets him, I think thinks he's got you know he's yeah. he's, he's a friend mm. rather than someone who's he's like blatantly trying to recruit him. So as you said, this is twenty fifteen. This is starting to happen. Mm. Lots of young people are, are being recruited to go over to this perceived paradise of the mm. Islamic State. Yeah. Tell me about researching these people. What's, mm. What was actually going on? Well, one, you know, when I first started the book, I thought I wasn't going to write a Pervez section because in, in some ways I thought, you know, I don't want to write that stereotype story of, you know, here was sort of a boy with a violent side who was drawn to violence and misogyny and was able to mm-hmm. go into a world where that was permissible to him. But once I started to look into the propaganda that ISIS used to draw these young men in, I mean, the women is a different story, so, and, and this one's only concentrating on the men. What you quickly realize is it's not all about violence. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a really wonderful report by a researcher called Charlie Winter, who deals in this a lot, and he looked at three or six months of recruitment propaganda and one of the very interesting things to me about what turned up was that although yes there is some violence within that propaganda it's certainly not the overwhelming part of it and actually among the the things they use is a sense of belonging state building lack of racism welfare state element um, and then things like look we have lovely zoos and you know clean streets and and it sort of thought I thought oh of course because this is the difference between ISIS and other terrorist groups is that they actually wanted to build a state, which meant they didn't just want fighters. They needed to bring in doctors and engineers and in Pervez's case, sort of media specialists and all kinds of things. And, and they had a very sophisticated, multi-pronged method of propaganda uh, that it seemed to me was really drawing on disaffected, aimless young people who often were lacking a sense of belonging and had all kinds of vulnerabilities that could very easily be manipulated to these ends. And so so I became interested in that with Pervez. I thought, well, supposing you start with a character who, you know, does love his sisters, has no interest in violence. In fact, you know, he sort of flinches from it. And yet they're going to find a way to draw him in. And indeed, that story you mentioned mm. at the beginning of that answer is not the story you wrote, because mm. Pervez is, is entirely sympathetic. Mm. We can understand why he goes and we can follow along with his disillusionment with it. What's most shocking to me is the media reaction mm-hmm. to him, you know, mm-hmm. once it becomes out that he's yeah. he's gone there and, and the sort of misunderstanding of why he's gone there and the misunderstanding of, again, we're not going to give away what happens in the story, but, you know, the misunderstanding of what happens to, mm-hmm. to Pervez, what are the, the shocking elements to me, not the fact that he chose to go? Yeah, well, it's, you know, we, we're in a very odd world. Maybe we always have been, but where increasingly it seems that if someone is pulled into something that is clearly hideous and, and awful, that if you say anything about them other than hideous and awful, then somehow you're justifying the hideousness. Whereas, in fact, what you're saying is part of the hideousness is the way it can draw people in. And so the idea that you can have any sympathy or compassion you know, is one for which there isn't a lot of room. It's just you know, certain words, if they're attached to you, such as ISIS, that's it's seen as sort of the only story and then it's just about you know the terrible evil crazy person you are even if you're trying to get out i think with young women there's a slightly different story mm. um and it's part of the very gendered world where we're in that when you start to have the story of of young girls of 17 and 18 going to isis at that point you found that the media was asking questions like, but why are they going? And, and Yeah, it seems like there's even less sympathy when yeah. it's women. Well, I don't know if there's less sympathy. There's, I think the question, why are they going, gets asked more. Whereas with the men, the, there's sort of an assumption, oh, we know why they're going. Yeah. It's because they want to kill people and, uh, you know, have women slaves. You know, as if that's, that's the mm-hmm. one story. Whereas the women, it's, oh, we don't quite have a narrative that explains this. So let's at least ask questions around it. And I think there is a lot of of ugliness out there and a lot of feeling that if you say there's nuance in the stories of these people that gets interpreted as saying well let's be nuanced about how we respond to ISIS and there's no nuance in your response to ISIS they're vile but you know that doesn't mean there are no other stories around the people getting drawn in particularly when you consider how very very young some of those young men and women are I mean an astonishing number of well actually not astonishing an eye-opening number of them are teenagers. Mm-hmm. 
And if you think about teenagers and how easy it is for them to make stupid mistakes, mm-hmm. it sort of gives you pause. Sure. And again, we now live in a world yeah. where, you know, your stupid mistake that you make is mm. suddenly broadcast to the entire world on social media. That's something yeah. we'll talk about actually in, mm. in the second half, because that's something that happens to Anika with yeah. her reaction. Whereas once upon a time, you know, you'd have just made your mm-hmm. stupid mistake and come yeah. back and it would, you know, your life just got on with your life. Pervez, he's not going over there to be a fighter. He's mm. actually going over there and he joins the, the media arm yeah. of, of ISIS. But of course, that means that he can't avoid the hideousness because the hideousness of the situation is part of his job then, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's someone who very quickly realises once he gets there, oh my God, that, you know, he realises that he's been groomed. Really, that's what happens to him. It is a form of grooming Mm. and it involves all kinds of things. There's, you know, various people have said there's there's a distinct homoerotic element to his relationship with, with Farouk, which I wouldn't deny. I mean, you know, this is someone who has never had a father put an arm around him. Mm. Um, And so when an older man puts an arm around him, that just, you know, he sort of is almost hopeless in the face of that. And there's no avoiding the hideousness. So once he arrives there and is faced with the reality of it, he very quickly realises that he has been a selfish, stupid idiot. I mean, you know, this is something. But now he's there. And one of the things they do when you're there is they take your passport away almost Mm. immediately. And so there's sort of, right, now I'm stuck. And what do I do about that? And and that becomes part of of his story. And I mean, and the book. And of course, the other thing is then there's a sort of d- certain degree of monitoring your calls back home. But there's also the question of you know even when he can speak to his sisters, what can he say? You know, he's made this decision. He didn't tell them. He's left them, and he knows that he's left them with a big problem because now they're going to be watched. And there's going to be surveillance and the kind of thing that happens to Isma at the start when she's being interrogated at Mm. Heathrow. He's brought all that on their heads. Um, So there's also that incredible shame of realising what he's done and what he's done to the people who he loves most in the world. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Camilla Shamsi and we're talking about her latest novel, Home Fire. And Camilla, that brings us on to Annika, mm-hmm. who's the twin sister and Antigone figure mm-hmm. in this book. So I guess we should talk about, OK, if people do know the story of Antigone, it might sort of give away some of something of what's going to happen, which we're not going to try and do talking about it. But let's perhaps use Annika to talk about the decision to adapt Mm-hmm. the Antigone story in this setting. So one of the things that's interesting to me in that figure of Antigone is the different ways in which she gets read. I mean, mm-hmm. people always like to go on about how these great classic texts are universal and they carry yeah. across, you know, centuries and all that. And actually, it's it's not true that they... Well, it's true they carry across, but they they do so partly because they're flexible. Mm-hmm. And, and there can, are multiple versions, of yeah, course. Yeah, and well. there are multiple versions. You can read them in different ways. Mm-hmm. And, and with, the, with Antigone, there are two very distinct ways in which she gets read by people. And one is she's a fanatic. She's a fanatic. She will not listen to anyone else. She doesn't recognize the law. She doesn't recognize her limits. Um, She has no concern beyond what she thinks needs to be done. So that's one version of her. And the other version is she is one of the great heroes of literature. She stands up to a tyrannical state, even knowing that the cost may be her own life. But in the name of justice Mm -hmm. and in the name of what is right, she's willing to do these things. So I was very interested in seeing if I could write a character who perhaps readers would be able to see both these elements in, um, and maybe some readers will go in one direction Mm -hmm. and some in the other. But I was also interested in the thing that people don't say enough about Antigone, I think, which is she is a woman gripped by grief um, because what happens at the start of the play is she discovers that her brother Polynices is 
A, dead, but B, his body is being left above the ground for the dogs to eat and the birds to peck. And I was thinking, you know, you can't not talk about that and what that does to a human being if you're going to talk about Antigone. I mean, imagine the person you love most in the world has just died. How do you deal with that? But then this idea of them being ripped apart by animals, it's absolutely unbearable. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is. And then you have to understand how completely unbearable that is before you start you know, making these these judgments of her that sort of live up in some abstract plane. And to me, Antigone's responses just come from the horror, the horror of what is going to be done to her brother and just her complete inability to know how to live with that. And so it was that, that element, the grief element, that really within I was drawing on and that idea of, of, so what all will you do in grief? What will you do for the body of the person you love? And then I took it back a little bit, because of course this isn't entirely Antigone. And, and if you take that question back a step, it becomes, what would you do to save the life of the person you mm-hmm. love? What is the cost to yourself? And But then also, what might you discover about yourself in doing that? You might discover that you can't do the thing you were setting out to do, or the thing you thought you were setting out to do becomes something else entirely. This is all going to sound very vague to people who haven't read the book. But Indeed, yes, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. you know, these... I mean, I was going to say all of the characters in this book are, mm-hmm. you know, they're extremely nuanced in their mm-hmm. portrayal of, you know, both their faith and their interaction with mm-hmm. the sort of wider society... Annika is, you know, a, a girl who wears a headscarf, but then, you know, what you're not going to talk about, what you're being vague about, the way she pursues mm-hmm. her course in this book is is completely opposite to that. But well, on... she's, I mean, you know, she is among the, the stereotypes I didn't want to write. So I didn't want to write the Muslim boy who is drawn to violence and goes off to fight. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to write the Muslim girl who wears a hijab and that means that she is not a sexual being yeah. and that means she doesn't have all the kind of regular modern-day complications mm-hmm. of someone who doesn't... Well, regular modern-day is a very odd <laughs> phrase. Uh, but it, it doesn't mean that she's her life is as apart from someone who isn't wearing a headscarf, mm-hmm. as you might think. And she is, you know, she's a, she's a very beautiful sexual being who knows exactly how attractively she wears the hijab and is, you know, takes great care and time about which one she wears and how they look on her. Yeah. Well, I was going to say the central idea of Antigone, which mm. is the idea of, how to describe it, like natural law versus mm. like man-made law, yeah. and which one is more important to her, mm. also sort of plays into that sort of like modern media narrative of this supposed tug of Muslims in... In the, in the UK between their faith and the state, doesn't it? It does, and yet, actually, when I first was thinking about it, that became the obvious story, that it's mm. about, you know, is it about what religious practice decrees or is it about what the custom and law decrees? But the more I thought about it, I thought, actually, no, that's sort of the red herring, because really what it's about is law versus civil liberties, which is really what, you know, we've been seeing in this country for mm-hmm. so many years. We we keep getting told out. We keep getting told and people now say it as though this is a fact, that there is a trade off between liberty and security. And you hear very intelligent people saying this as though it's an absolute fact that any time a liberty is taken away, our security is increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really is at the heart of it is that there's the Home Secretary saying in the name of the state security, we have to do these things. And the other side of the argument is actually that that's unjust and against civil liberties and um, against human rights. And that brings us nicely onto our, our, our final character that the, the story is told from from his perspective, Karamat Lone, who's the just become the Home Secretary. He's Eamon's father, the crayon figure in this mm-hmm. in this story, we should say. And, I mean, would it be libelous to say, just imagine... Saeed Javed, and you've pretty much got it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're the first one to say that because everyone else says, oh, so is it Sadiq Khan? I'm saying, but he's a Tory, <laughs> you know. It it would be libelous, I think. Um, and I actually, what I had in mind, I'll tell you what I did, because to me, he's a, he's a really interesting, complicated character, and I'm not without sympathy for him, which surprises me, because when I started the book, I was mm-hmm. without sympathy for him. But one thing I was thinking about when I started the book, that on one hand, we're living in a time where Muslims are more vilified than ever. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you have, and at that time, it was three, it was uh, Sadiq Khan, 
Sajid Javed and Saeed Avarsi. You had mm-hmm. these three figures, two of them Tories, one Labour, um, who were quite prominent in politics. And I thought, now that's really interesting. And they all have very different ways of talking about their Muslimness or not yeah, talking about it. I mean, that's it. why I would and, not have said this yeah. was Sadiq Khan, yeah. because yeah. The, the way that those two male yeah. politicians yeah. use it is... But let's let's say it's as if there's a British Muslim who largely agrees with Theresa May's policies as she had when she was Home Secretary, but his way at coming to it is a very different way and his journey into that position comes via being part of, a a big part of the sort of anti-racism protests of the 1970s. Yeah. Yeah, he's 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 yeah. gone on a, a yeah. political journey, hasn't yeah. he? Let's talk yeah. about what has he had to do. What sacrifices has he made to pursue his career? Well, he's a man who is very troubled by the fact that most Muslims think that he's anti-Muslim, and his line on it when someone says you hate Muslims, and his line is, "I hate the Muslims who make people hate Muslims," you know, and and he actually sees himself as someone who will somehow save the British Muslim community from this position they're in of being this reviled you know, minority uh, by saying, look, you can be like me. You, know, you don't have to go in that direction. I'm an example of the kind of Muslim you can be in Britain mm-hmm. and Britain will you know, thank you for it. Along the way, and I think, you know, I think there are times he is misunderstood and there are times when he is misunderstanding. But one of the things that he gives up is his family, who are very angry with him about a thing referred to as mosque gate. When he's there's a, very early on in his career, there's a picture of him leaving a mosque at which a fundamentalist preacher once preached at some other point. And he sort of comes out very stridently, not only against that preacher, but against sort of mosques and all kinds of things and and really upsets his family who cut off ties with him. And that's part of what he loses, is the ties to his family, to the British Pakistani community. And there's a bit of him that always regrets and, and longs for it. And so he's raising these children who know nothing about their father's heritage in a way. And that is partly his choice, but every now and then he just sort of sighs and, you know, wishes that they they knew this world a little better and, you know, and they can't really make head or tail of him because he seems so contradictory to him and uh, to them. Um, and that really is what he is. He, he wants to belong to both worlds, but both, you know, one, the world of the establishment and the other, the world of the working class British Muslim that he once was. Um, but these worlds are so set against each other. Mm-hmm that he doesn't know how to be in both and perhaps you can't be. I mean, I must say, he it would be very easy for him to have become a, you know, a, a sort of cartoon villain of this piece. But he, you, you make him incredibly sympathetic and not least it's the interactions with, mm-hmm. with his family and the way that you can see, you know, his estrangement from his wife, his relationship with Eamon, like, you know, he clearly mm-hmm. really loves his children and, mm-hmm. and, and that sort of tension in the family is heartbreaking. It is, and, and he believes himself to be a noble man. I mean, you know, he he knows that he has, you know, this sort of street fighting side, as he mm-hmm. says it, but, but he believes that, you know, he loves Britain, he loves the British way of life, he loves all Britain, and particularly London's, you know, multi-everything, multi-ethnicity, multi-dimensionality. He loves and wants to, you know, and he thinks he's a man who can bring all these things together. And he's very, very wrong in all kinds of ways, not least the way he sees himself. But he is not without human feeling. He has plenty of human feeling, particularly towards his family. Just one more thing for me, then, and I'll I'll get you to read a bit if you would. Um, What has it been now that the book has been long-listed for the booker to you? It's very nice, isn't it? Yeah, where's the writer's going to say, oh, well, no, it doesn't mean very much. No, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's fantastic. And again, you know, it's, you think it's one of the things that will hopefully get more readers to pick up the book. And that's what you really want as a writer is, is to get as many people as you can out there to pick it up. That's a good point for us to finish then. So if I could get you to, uh, to read a little bit sure. of it, if you would. So this is the first chapter of... Home fire. It's a couple of pages in, and we're with Isma, who is on her way to America to a PhD program, but she's been pulled aside at Heathrow and is being interrogated. The plane would be boarding now. Isma looked over at the suitcase. She'd repacked when the woman official left the room and spent the time since worrying if doing that without permission constituted an offence. Should she empty the clothes out into a haphazard pile, or would that make things even worse? She stood up, unzipped the suitcase and flipped it open so its contents were visible. 
A man entered the office carrying Isma's passport, laptop and phone. She allowed herself to hope, but he sat down, gestured for her to do the same and placed a voice recorder between them. Do you consider yourself British? the man said. I am British. But do you consider yourself British? I've lived here all my life. She meant there was no other country of which she could feel herself apart, but the words came out sounding evasive. The interrogation continued for nearly two hours. He wanted to know her thoughts on Shias, homosexuals, the Queen, democracy, the Great British Bake Off, the invasion of Iraq, Israel, suicide bombers, dating websites. After that early slip regarding her Britishness, she settled into the manner that she'd practiced with Anika playing the role of the interrogating officer and Isma responding to her sister as though she was a customer of dubious political opinions, whose business she didn't want to lose by voicing strenuously opposing views, but to whom she didn't see the need to lie either. So, for instance, when people talk about the enmity between Shias and Sunni, it usually centres around a political imbalance of power, such as in Iraq or in Syria. As a Brit, I don't distinguish between one Muslim and another. Or, occupying other people's territory generally causes more problems than it solves. This served for both Iraq and Israel. Killing civilians is sinful. That's equally true if the manner of killing is a suicide bombing or aerial bombardments or drone strikes. There were long intervals of silence between each answer and the next question as the man clicked keys on her laptop, examining her browser history. He knew that she was interested in the marital status of an actor from a popular TV series, knew that wearing a hijab didn't stop her from buying expensive products to tame her frizzy hair, knew that she had searched for how to make small talk with Americans. You know, you don't have to be so compliant about everything Anika had said during the role-playing. Her sister not quite 19, with her law student brain who knew everything about her rights and nothing about the fragility of her place in the world. For instance, if they ask you about the Queen, just say, as an Asian, I have to admire her colour palette. It's important to show at least a tiny bit of contempt for the whole process. Instead, Isma had responded, I greatly admire Her Majesty's commitment to her role. But there had been comfort in hearing her sister's alternative answers in her head, her ha of triumph when the official asked a question she'd anticipated and that Isma had dismissed, such as the Great British Bake Off one. Well, if they didn't let her board this plane, or anyone after this, she would go home to Anika, which is what half Isma's heart knew it should do in any case. How much of Anika's heart wanted that was a hard question to answer. She'd been so adamant that Isma not change her plans for America, and whether this was selflessness or a wish to be left alone was something even Anika herself didn't seem to know. A tiny flicker in Isma's brain signalled a thought about Pervez that was trying to surface, before it was submerged by the strength of her refusal ever to think about him again. Eventually the door opened, and the woman official walked in. Perhaps she would be the one to ask the family questions, the ones most difficult to answer, the most fraught when she'd prepared with her sister. Sorry about that, the woman said unconvincingly. Just had to wait for America to wake up and confirm some details about your student visa. All checked out. Here. She handed a stiff rectangle of paper to Isma with an air of magnanimity. It was the boarding pass for the plane she'd already missed. I've been talking to Camilla Shamsi. We've been talking about her latest novel, Home Fire, which is out now from Bloomsbury. And as I mentioned before, it's been long-listed for the 2017 Man Booker Prize. Camilla, thanks very much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and 
potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.